0: Sheets, or no, 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 no. Um, so thank you very much for coming and thanks to Cambridge University Press and to the Science Festival team for giving me the chance to, to do this, to talk about something that um, I've really enjoyed discovering more about in the last few years working with the Darwin Correspondence Project um, and I hope that you will enjoy too. Um, so. Charles Darwin came up to Christ's College in 1828 um, and it occurred to me that this is really the closest that we have to a sort of college yearbook photo. Um, So this is Darwin, uh, drawn by one of his student friends, riding on a beetle because um, Darwin, when he came up here, was doing pretty much the kind of stuff that all students do, a certain amount of talk about girls, a lot of talk about food. Um, hiding debts from his dad, Um, and some hobbies. And one of his hobbies was beetle collecting, hence the very large beetle. So, what I want to do, actually, this evening, is talk about one particular hobby that Darwin developed much later in life, Um, a hobby that actually made a very significant contribution to his wider scientific work. And you'll probably recognise many of these um, as species of carnivorous plants all plants that have turned the tables on animals you know they they instead of being eaten they they trap and they eat animals insects largely um, the story of Darwin's work on these is actually a, a It's a story of beauty and deception and seduction and all those things that these plants have. It's also a very intimate story of how this hobby that he had, a guilty pleasure even actually, uh, became led to discoveries that radically transform our understanding of the living world. It's (coughs) plays a very important, but I think largely forgotten, overlooked part in Darwin's work, so we hope we can do something about that this evening. It is part of how he described evolution as working. But it's also, I think, a story that tells us a lot about how Darwin himself worked. Um, In particular, despite, I think, the still persisting popular image of Darwin as a sort of um, lone thinker, he was actually a very practical scientist, and he was also one who worked with a a shifting but extensive cohort of collaborators, uh, from his family, through his friends, to wider scientific world in a range of spheres. So he may not have been famous when he came up to Cambridge, but he's certainly famous now. Last time I looked, there were more than 17,000 titles with the word Darwin, uh, books with the word Darwin in the title. I'm sure there are more by now. He's one of a handful of scientists who have really almost ceased to be a person and have instead really become a brand. Um, just some of the stuff you can pick up if you really want to, and most of this is actually lying around in our office, um, with the exception of the ten-pound note. <laughs> so you might think, well, you yeah, really can there be any more to say? Well, luckily, um, only a few hundred yards away from where we are now in the Darwin Archive of Cambridge University Library, there are thousands upon thousands of sheets of manuscript in Darwin's private archive. And these are still proving very fruitful for research. And also you can see on the left, um, those books are Darwin's own research collection, his own library. So we're very lucky to have access to that material. We, We can see what Darwin was using when he was reading to do research. So, yeah, there is more that can be said. Now, when Darwin left Cambridge, he went off on what is probably the most famous extended gap year of all time. (laughs) Um, He went off on his voyage around the world, on the Admiralty Surveying Voyage, uh, Earth Vessel Beagle, HMS Beagle. When he came back, his head was full of ideas, and he opened a series of notebooks, and quite quite early on, so around 1837, he opened a notebook on um, a new specimen of primate at London Zoo, Jenny, the orangutan, the first one that they ever had. Very shortly afterwards, he opened another notebook on another primate, his first son, William. Oops. Never mind. Uh, oh yeah, there we go. So it's first on William. So you see, they're born on the 27th December 1839, and that notebook is in Cambridge University Library. Yeah, it's not very happy with me now. Yes, there we go. And this is the first page. So you can see, it just starts, William Erasmus Darwin, born December 27th 1839. What Darwin was looking for was not what made Jenny and William different, but what made them the same. And that's really the thread that runs through all of his work. It is looking for what connects all living things. This is actually a great thing. You can read this online, and you can you can also see many of the images from it. Um, it is a wonderful mixture of the scientific and the personal, interspersed with comments about um, when he first yawned, when he first cried. Uh, when he showed signs of being able to relate to individual people, to faces. Work that was actually published um, many, many years later uh, as a still quite, I think, important piece of infant psychology. In amongst all that, there are all the kinds of anecdotes that new parents would typically keep about their children. Um, there's one, one son, George, as a child, when asked what he thought of reading, he said, I don't like reading. I like money, (laughs) (laughs) and he was not the one who went on to be a banker, Um, it was actually William who went on to be a banker. Um, All the children uh, grow um, from being objects of research to being the assistants in research. Um, It's it's a a wonderfully mixed life, domestic and scientific life. Oh, it's really not going to like me now. Okay. Um, So here are a few of those other primate specimens that the Darwins went on to have in their home in Down House in Kent. And this is where Darwin worked. And after getting back from the Beagle voyage, he really never left left Britain again. He left England. He never left Britain again. Um, So he worked at home at Down House, You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to end this and start it again see if that will actually reset it because otherwise it's going to be really annoying. Right, let's try. Okay. Uh, Does anybody have any idea how to get this right? Okay, well, we'll just have to... Sorry. it gives me a chance to catch up on my notes. Yes, thank you very much. Okay, I'll use that. All right. Okay, so, there, so this, this is the Darwin family at home at Down in Kent, which was Darwin's home from 1842 until his death in 1882. He worked in a completely domestic setting. This is his study. It was also his library and his laboratory. He had a piece of board in the window embrasure that he used for dissections. His microscopes were here. The, but but his work really spilled out far beyond his study to in, envelop the entire house and the grounds. There were plant experiments growing in the parlour. There's a late photograph of one there. Um, and really the whole surrounding countryside. He He worked and lived seamlessly. Right, sorry, it's my fault. Use these. Okay, so um, in amongst all the other papers in the Darwin Archive, these are a couple of the treasures. These are very rare surviving sheets of manuscript at various stages of On the Origin of Species. There are very few of these still surviving in the world. Probably these were not kept because of the seminal nature of origin, but I'm not very educable, Um, but but because on the other side, flip them over, on the other side, children's drawings, because Darwin gave his scrap paper to his children. And as a bit of a plug, Cambridge University Library has a major exhibition called Lines of Thought, which is opening on Friday, and if you want to see the battle of the fruits and vegetables... (laughs) done probably by Francis Darwin, never mind Origin on the other side, then you can see that. It's, it's a rare opportunity to go and see that as part of a great exhibition that's just going on. Um, oh God. Move my hands down. Okay. But the major element in, in amongst all of those scientific papers is not really the notebooks or the scientific notes, it's these, it's letters. Letters were a really important tool for Darwin in how he worked. Once he did come back from the Beagle Voyage, he didn't travel very much, so all the information that he needed to go on and publish his entire research programme came to him through books and correspondence. Correspondence was a way in which he gathered information on plants, animals, peoples, from all over the world, he, we, the, the project that I work with is publishing all of Charles Darwin's known surviving letters. So far, and they do still come to light, we've located more than 15,000. That's both sides of the correspondence, that's once he wrote and once he received. Most of them are here in Cambridge, but obviously, you know, correspondence gets scattered all over the world and Darwin's is no exception. So they, they are still being found. Um, We're publishing them with Cambridge University Press, so you can read them. We publish chronologically. Um, We've just published the 23rd, that's right, the 23rd volume. Um, um, And thanks to the press, uh, with the collaboration of the press and of the Darwin family um, and of the university, we're also able to put them online. Do go and have a look at our (coughs) website, DarwinProject.ac.uk, and explore the letters there. It's a different way of of reading them and engaging with the material. They're online up to the year 1871. (coughs) So, to go back to these, I think we are so used to thinking of these as carnivorous plants that we've rather forgotten, um, that actually 150 years ago, before Darwin published this book, Insectivorous Plants, the fact that they did indeed digest animal matter was just not known. Insectivorous Plants, Darwin's book, was published in 1875, And that, we've just just published letters for the year 1875. So, for the first time, really, the whole story of how this book came into being is available because, unusually, for one of Darwin's books, Insectivorous Plants has no introduction and no general conclusion. There is really very little in the book itself that gives the game away that that alerts you to the fact this is really significant work that Darwin was doing here. Not only was it not known that these plants were digesting animal matter, but actually, at the time, it was a truly shocking idea because this subverted the natural order. This was not what was supposed to be happening. One of Darwin's closest friends, the the Harvard botanist Asa Gray, Still, in 1875, when Darwin published this book, was producing a, a popular book of botanical lectures in which he stated that plants exist as food for animals. It was a very difficult concept, I think, to leap away from at the time. And Darwin was the person who actually started to make that possible. So this one you might recognise, On the Origin of Species. Now this was published in 1859, so Darwin had a lot of work to do after this, and it really was largely um, work on plants um, that uh, he he continued to do for the the remainder of his working life. They were very convenient. subject of research. I'm actually, of course, going to attempt the near-impossible this evening, which is to make 15 years of Victorian botany sufficiently intriguing that you, <laughs> that you stay put. Um, so, Darwin's... The main plank of Darwin's evolutionary thinking was his theory of natural selection, the mechanism by which he proposed that new species evolve... Where resources are scarce, he proposed the idea that small, heritable variations, naturally occurring variations that get passed on from generation to generation, not in a very straightforward way, not in a way that anybody really understood at the time, but which people could incontrovertibly see was happening, those small, heritable variations may make the difference between life and death. Crucially, of course, between living long enough to breed and pass your sort of favourable variation on to the next generation. Those variations, Darwin suggested, they might be um, a better beak for exploiting a particular foodstuff that happened to still be available. Um, Anything that helps you to run faster than what might try to eat you, to eat other things... Uh, any, all those <coughs> the patterns that help you to hide all those naturally occurring variations could then expand within the population, sufficiently to actually alter <coughs> the species. Species would diverge and given sufficient time, time was another very important thing for Darwin, those favourable variations would become so established in the population of one area that they might not, no longer be able to breed with their cousins in another area and a new species is developed. So every adaptation to environment, every remarkable mm-hmm. colour, texture, pattern that we see around us, Darwin proposed could actually be produced through this very simple mechanism that he called natural selection. <laughs> Darwin really is about the interconnectedness of all living things. When he published this theory, of course, he he was only 50. um, He had a whole research programme really mapped out for the rest of his working life, designed to counter the criticisms that were raised against his theories and to explore as widely as possible um, the implications of his ideas. We tend to focus very much on Darwin's achievement in terms of putting humans back into the continuum with other animals. It's actually an idea that I think we've become quite comfortable with, apart from anything else we can see it. I I hope you can actually, can you pick that out? Can you see what, this is Darwin, You can see the Gallery of Ancestors. And what he's actually looking at is a great ape in the Gallery of Ancestors. This, I'm giving you a sneak preview here. I might have to swear you all to secrecy because this caricature um, is actually also in that University Library exhibition. We think this is the first time it's ever been seen publicly. Uh, We can't discover that it was ever published. It was done by... um, It's signed by quite well-known French caricaturist and painter, Georges Montbar. And Montbar was a political refugee in London in 1871, which is the same year that Darwin wrote Descent of Man. So the implication is very strong that this was done. It's a watercolour, that this was done um, while Montbar was in London uh, and in direct response to Descent of Man. So Darwin had got people more used to the idea, I think, that they were indeed, we are all related to other branches of primates. It's a much bigger mental hurdle, I think, to put ourselves and all other animals back into the same continuum with other living things, with plants. (laughs) This is despite the fact that today we know that we share around 15% of our DNA with certain kinds of grasses and cereals, 50% of our DNA with some kinds of nuts, and 60% of our DNA with bananas. You might want to think about that next time you have a bowl of breakfast cereal. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still, I think, quite difficult, really. to, to uh, Plants and animals seem to be so different you know, surely it's obvious. So much of the work that Darwin was doing after Origin was actually trying to break down that divide, to look at the margins between plants and animals, to look for the similarities. Just as he had done with his baby son and the, and, and Jenny the orangutan, he was looking for what makes plants and animals the same. Just as he had been looking to see what made humans, and other primates, the same. So back to those carnivorous plants. And really, you can't understand the stories I've said without going back to Darwin's private letters and papers. This is not something that you get from just reading his publications. I would encourage you to actually have a look at insectivorous plants, in particular if you're interested in how science is done. It's a really good, I think, guide to devising experiments. It is really one long exposure of Darwin's scientific method. And it does indeed contain chloroform and cobra poison. So I wasn't lying when I gave the title of this talk. It also contains mass murder, I have to say, or tremendous slaughter, as Darwin put it. He was very... He relished this subject. I think this is one of the things that has made this a very interesting area for me to get involved in in these last few years. I'm a historian, not a scientist, so it's the history of the science that comes most easily to me. But I found this story of Darwin's work on on these plants absolutely fascinating, and part of that is because he found it so fascinating. He didn't think of this as work. And in fact, it all started by accident, um, every now and then, Darwin's wife, Emma, insisted that he go away on holiday. Darwin didn't like holidays. Uh, he thought they were boring. In 1860, Emma's idea to go away on holiday backfired spectacularly. Because when Darwin was out sort of walking on the, the heath, they were staying in Sussex, um, I think you can sort of imagine him rather morosely out there with his walking stick, you know. <coughs> he sort of, more or less, literally stumbled f- across a new area of study. He found a patch <coughs> of, let's see if that's is actually the same slides now, oh, okay. He found a patch of the, the sundew, that's one of his um, illustrations on the left there for insectivorous plants, I go back again. So the sundew's in the middle on this one. Drosera rotundifolia is the one that he actually found. And what struck him about it first was the fact that the tendrils, those wonderful red filaments with their sticky, uh, sticky ends, move. And movement. the the ability of plants to move was was part of a much longer research program for Darwin because when you're thinking about what it is that seems so obviously to divide plants and animals, well, the ability to move really seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Plants don't move, except that they do. Um, And Darwin noticed that the the tentacles on these drosser, on these sundews, had the power to close down makes sense themselves into a sort of a fist, really. He also noticed that there were a lot of flies stuck to those leaves. Um, now neither of these were observations that anybody else couldn't have made, and indeed people had. But one of the one of the very interesting things about Darwin is that a major part of his working method is curiosity. And I put this slide together really quickly from images of letters that Darwin has written and um, you have to get your eye in a bit, but I think you can see, right across the middle, curiosity, curiosity. idle curiosity. Uh, go back to the mic, but very curious, how curious. So curiosity, his own curiosity was a driving force, and he focused on exactly the kind of exceptions, the niggling things, the things that didn't fit, which most of his contemporaries at the time had just more or less shrugged their shoulders about. So, Asa Gray, that Darwin botanist, a very close friend of Darwin's, who was writing um, general science guides, after the chapter in which he says, um, the natural order of things is that that, um, animals eat plants, He has a short chapter on plants that move, but his conclusion is really that these are exceptions. What are you going to do? What can we say? What can we say about them? Darwin thought he could say something. So, having noticed this patch of sundews, he did something that you could do in the Victorian period and we can't do now. He dug them up and he took them home. (laughs) Don't try this. (laughs) You'll get into trouble. Um, and he devised a series of experiments. just want to make sure I'm not actually missing out anything curious myself. This, by the way, was the beginning of what you could describe as a 15-year love affair, really, I think. He, he adored these plants. Um, by the end of the year, he was, he was calling it my beloved Drosera. Um, future holidays, poor Mrs Darwin, the plants went with them. <laughs> so, there was no escape. Um, and she said at one point, he is, he is treating Drosera just like a little animal, and I suppose he, he means to end by proving it to be such. Well, yeah, actually, it's exactly what he was doing. I included on this slide and these other these other two. This, this is just to talk a little bit about this longer running research program on movement in plants. Um, Darwin, before he came across the sundews, had already seen examples of mimosa, sensitive the sensitive plant, which of course collapses its leaves at a touch. Um, there are other plants which which close their leaves down at night. So it is actually a sleeping mechanism, it is a way of conserving energy. And these stereoscope plates are ones that Darwin made with one of his sons, um, so filming a plant um, at night and in the day, and showing that its leaves actually collapsed when it was dark. So he was exploring very widely on this power of plants to move. Yeah, so plants don't move except the ones who do. So he set about devising um, a series of experiments. These are just some of his notes, actually from a much later stage. This was a very long-running research programme. He felt actually rather guilty about doing it. He he went away and wrote several other books during the course of this. Um, Also, though, he was responding to changes in the research environment. There were certain things that it was possible for him to do by the time you got to the 1870s, that he couldn't actually do in the early 60s. So it's, it is a really very interesting story about research method as well. But these are just some of his notes. Um, looking at these two are actually both about movement. Um, very detailed examinations of what's going on actually at the cellular level very often, in in these plants. Within, he have noticed for instance that. With, with sun dews, the outer tentacles, you don't have to actually touch an individual tentacle in order for it to move. If, some, if a fly lands on one side of the leaf, the tentacles will move all the way around the leaf. So he, his question really, he had two questions. How were they moving? And why were they moving? And to start off with how, he devised a series of of experiments, and within a, a very few months, he was convinced that they must have something rather like a nervous system. So he was looking again for the for the analogies with animals. So, is it not curious that a plant should be far more sensitive to a touch than any nerve in the human body? He tried touching them with the most minute pieces of human hair. Woman's hair, he said. I think he must have thought that was lighter. I'm not quite sure that <laughs> that's true. Um, I'm perfectly sure this is true, he said. And when I'm on my hobby horse, to be back to hobbies, when I'm on my hobby horse, I can never resist telling my friends um, how well my hobby goes. So you must forgive the rider. There's a lot of, a lot of to-ing and fro discussion of these ideas. I declare, he said, I am coming to the conclusion that plants, or at least Drosera, must have something Closely analogous to nervous matter. He wrote that in 1862. So this is only two years after first, first really starting to look at this problem. Now, if you, suggest, if, you, if you suspected that an organism might have a nervous system, how would you go about testing it? Darwin's answer was, use a nerve agent. And he had a tendency to use anything that was lying around. Another big difference with the Victorian period to now is the kind of stuff that you might naturally have lying around. <laughs> um, so he started out with chloroform. Why did he have chloroform? Well, you remember all those little Darwins. Emma Darwin had ten children, um, starting in the eighteen. 18- 1839, going right on up into the 1850s, by the mid, by the 1850s, chloroform was just beginning to come in as a medical analgesic, Um, and Darwin was, the Darwins were pioneers really in its use in childbirth. Um, He actually gave the chloroform to Emma himself. I think he was probably having the the odd sniff (laughs) along the way. He so told one of his friends that he thought it was just as composing to oneself as to the patient. <laughs> so, he got some chloroformed hands, so he, he tried gassing these poor plants um, to see if they would react in the same kind of way that you might expect an, an animal to react. It was a little inconclusive, It, 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 it seemed to have, but it did seem to have some effect. So, he set about trying a whole, whole raft of other things... Um, he wrote to by the, in the early stages he, this was this is one of those things that he couldn't take very far. But later on, um, once he got to the 1870s when he really picked up this research again, in the meantime he worked on far more animals um, because he'd written. We'd written the book rather misleadingly called Descent of Man, which actually talks about other animals um, far more than it does about man, really, for very good reasons. Um, but in looking at that, he had, for one thing, learned a lot more himself about physiology, about animal physiology. He'd also made a lot of contacts. He was an incredibly good networker, hence all those letters. I mean, you don't, you don't leave sort of 15,000-odd letters unless you're somebody who really knows how to communicate, and how to inspire others to communicate with you. And so when he resumed this, this, these experiments and was thinking again about this idea of a nervous system, he, he looked around for some other things to try, um, and he wrote to... Uh, well, he actually talked to one of his, his friends, um, Lord Brunton, a doctor, who then talked to another friend of his, um, and the end, it ended up with Darwin being offered some cobra poison. <coughs> Just—it's not the kind of letter you get through the post every day. Uh, thought you'd be glad to have some cobra poison, so I'm sending you some. Yeah. Poor postman. <laughs> and in the end, he used the whole Victorian poisoner's arsenal: <laughs> here, digitalin', Um strychnine. There's a letter where he writes, Darwin writes to the family chemist, Mr. Baxter, and says, oh, um, Mrs. Darwin would be grateful if you would send her some tonic, and could you also send me a bottle of strychnine? (laughs) So you have to hope they kept their medicine cabinet, you know, really carefully separated. Um, So, yeah, all the poisons you could think of and a few recreational drugs thrown in. (laughs) So... I think what's, what's also good about this, Darwin, Darwin drew very few conclusions from this, again for very good reasons, because physiology, plant and animal physiology is not identical, so actually you wouldn't really ex- expect these agents to work in the same way on every organism and they don't. But he did discover that certainly many of the plants on which he tried these did react they, they were they they I they either in many cases actually they were stimulated by these um, so Yes, yeah, <coughs> yeah, so about um, use of chloroform, he said, it seemed a good opportunity to test how far this plant was sensitive to various vegetable substances which are known to act energetically on the nervous systems of animals. As yet, I can make out no sort of rule. But the difference in action is very great. Strychnine produces no effect. Belladonna does cause movement and a whole range of others. Opium, he said, puts the plants to sleep. And he said, this is... He says, well, I don't know how much use this is. This is another one of these things about curiosity, that to, to query the orthodoxy, to go against the orthodoxy, is actually a very brave thing to do. And Darwin really stuck his neck out on this one. He said to one friend, I don't know whether my twaddle will be worth publishing. But he persevered, despite the fact that really, a lot of this must have looked completely nuts anybody who was watching him do it um, but ultimately he really he said he, he really did start using the words the nerves nervous system this is the word this is the language of animal physiology um, he you he used exactly the same kind of experimental methods on these plants as you would on an animal. So he divided a leaf across the veins and showed that if you did that, only half the tentacles would inflect when you touched on the other side. So he could show that there was some kind of motive force that was being transmitted. And he pointed out this is exactly like dividing the spinal marrow of a frog. It's exactly the kind of experiments that would be being done by... Um, animal physiologists at the time. And he inspired work by others. Um, John Scott Burdon Sanderson was a very active physiologist, and Darwin and and Sanderson between them decided that, that Sanderson would do the experiments that by now Darwin really couldn't do. Some of this science did outgrow the domestic setting and that he would do things like galvanic experiments and other experiments using even more poisonous substances than Darwin could in in some cases. Um, And actually it was Burden Sanderson who went on to publish. So this is another very very interesting area, I think, that Darwin is actually part of a wider research network, and he's not simply drawing information into himself and giving nothing in return. Certainly by this stage in his career, the the stage in which, which we're really deeply enmeshed in now, he is inspiring work by others. So I need to move, move a little bit faster, so let's do that. So to go back to these Sundays... So the other big question, in many ways the bigger question for Darwin, was not just how are these things moving. Oh, and he, he did actually look very very much at the cellular level and noticed cellular changes that seemed to be driving that movement, but others went on to, to continue that work. But to go back, his other question was really, why are they moving? You know, what is... What, what benefit is this? With his view of the world, with his ideas about adaptation, his question was, what benefit is this to, to the animals? And he had noticed all those flies stuck on the sundew. People had seen it plenty of times before, but he started counting them, and he thought that there, was a, there were an, un, an unreasonably large number of insects being caught by these leaves on the sticky substance, and then being enclosed. Uh, by the tentacles. So he, again, devised a range of experiments. He started putting all kinds of substances on these leaves, anything that he that came to hand. And he had, had some pretty strange stuff lying around, I have to tell you. Um, gold leaf was one of the things he tried, not the kind of thing most of us have on our desks, but apparently Darwin did. Bits of cinder out of the fire. Um, Increasingly refining his experimental technique as he went along, because he was beginning to notice that well, he said the plants are excellent chemists; they can distinguish what object it is that's actually being placed on the leaf. Now, people had noticed before that that various plants, um, not so much sundews, but definitely Venus flytrap, which after all was already called Venus flytrap, were closing over insects. But previous observers had said, well, but it can't really be anything to do with with nutrition. They just close over. Either people said, well, they close over anything. Um, Or they had suggested that the decaying insects simply sort of dribbled their juices down the sides of the plant and it it kind of pooled, you know, in the soil, rather than the plants were directly deriving any benefit from these insects. Darwin, instead of just looking at how fast the tentacles closed, observed how fast they opened. And what he discovered was that the plants essentially spat out anything that was not good to eat. So the tentacles opened much more quickly if you put something on the leaf that did not contain nitrogen, that they could not actually extract nitrogen. than if you put on a piece of meat or a piece of egg white or something like that. So he said they were detecting, they knew when they had actually caught something that was good to eat. Not only that, but he began to notice that that sticky substance seemed to be secreted in much greater volume when the plants caught something that was good to eat. So was the sticky substance merely part of the chemical process of closing that leaf? Or could they actually be not merely catching these insects and essentially turning them into compost, but actually digesting them? Were the plants salivating? Really, is the question he asked. Ooh. It's Now no, it's really unhappy. <coughs> <laughs> I've <have> no idea. <laughs> What's he doing? I don't know, it's a good sleep. Anyway, right, where were we? Um, so yeah, so the question was it was becoming increasingly <laughs> more st- <laughs> 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 Should we try closing it down start <laughs> again? Okay, Okay. So, all right. So he tried all kinds of different substances, um, on some on some particularly. Oh, okay. Um, and he was all, again, he was fairly quickly convinced, actually, that they were not that they were actively adap- they were adapted to catch. Insects, in the case of of the sundews, he was looking at before. And that they were producing acidic secretions that were actually capable of digesting animal matter. And again, it took him, it was quite a long period of research process, and it's really only in the 1870s, with his wider network of physiologists, that he was able to to demonstrate, in fact, they demonstrated, inspired other people to demonstrate um, that these juices really were similar in composition and action to the gastric juices of an animal's stomach. And he described eventually what he did he described that Drosera closing up and he said turning the leaf into a temporary stomach. So he broadened out this research program and started looking at all kinds of other plants that might exhibit similar behaviours. Behaviours is a very good word in this context. The obvious one to look at was the Venus flytrap, but these were really not very common in, in England in the 1870s even, certainly not the 1860s. So he'd not seen one, and he'd heard reports, but, but very few people could believe that... The, in this case, of course, they, they, these... Do, these close quickly. These really snap. You can look online, and you can you can see video of these. These actually triggered and close. It's a very clever mechanism. Close very fast over their the, the flies. And Darwin discovered, in fact, he did, he did see one. He he um made he had very good friends at Kew Botanic Gardens, and some friends all over the world. And people did start sending him. Venus fly traps. They didn't all turn up in good condition, so it was a while before he actually managed to see one move. They don't really like living in this country. Um, But he was able to study them, and he inspired other people, particularly an American botanist, um, Mary Treed, to study them. Um, discovered some very interesting differences between the way that this works and the sundew. Um, Sundews... Will the, the, the tentacles only move when there is a sustained pressure because they don't want to put all that effort into closing if something's just touched and escaped. These move at very slight pressure. So it's the really interesting variations within the, the plant world. Different plants coming up with different mechanisms or adapted to have different mechanisms for exploiting animal foodstuffs. Some um, Somewhere not so obvious, perhaps, as the Venus flytrap, this is pinguicula, butterwort, uh, where it's the, the outer margins of the leaves sort of roll over. They're sticky, the, has, the, the leaves are sticky again, but lots of things are sticky that don't actually exploit plant foodstuffs. These, these are sticky and they fold over, and he showed that they would fold over little flies or they would fold over bits of meat. Um, probably, he first really was alerted to the fact that Pinguicula might be carnivorous, um, by a, a young woman called Amy Ruck, who was friends with some of his children. Um, Amy actually got engaged to and then married his son Francis, and a- some of Amy and Francis's letters from their honeymoon are about looking for <laughs> insectivorous plants. <laughs> it's a really dangerous business marrying into the Darwin family. <laughs> So he turned everybody to account, <coughs> And these are some of the notes that Francis and his father made together on Pinguicula, together with insectivus plants. But you can read that for yourselves. All the very different things to try. And some are really not obvious at all. This is bladderworts and waterwheel. Um, aquatic plants that have bladders. And it was, had been thought that they were there as kind of flotation devices, but actually they are part of the business of catching insects in conditions these, what these plants share, of course, is that they're living on the margins, living in places where it's difficult to, to get nutrition through normal roots. If you can't get it through roots, well, you've got to find some other way, or rather, there are areas where, where roots are not going to do you any good, so you the so so adaptation produces other ways for getting nutrition. And pitch plants, these wonderful things, there's lots and lots of different varieties of these. Um, and in th- this case, the insects are attracted often by sweet, sticky sap um, and fall in through the, on the slippery sides of the, of the trumpet-shaped flower and drown in the liquid inside. And in this case, they actually... Probably, many of these do not digest. This really is one of those cases where the, it's the decaying matter that actually is absorbed by the plants. Joseph Hooker-Darwin's very good friend, There's a lot of correspondence about the work that they were both interested in on Nepenthes, on the pitcher plant, and it was actually Hooker who did most of the publication on those. Um, Now, by the time Darwin actually came to publish Insectivorous plants, everybody knew what he was doing, really. It was no secret. He'd conscripted a whole army of people. Um, There was quite a lot of interest out in the press about this work. bending of the natural order, this disruption of the natural order. And some really lurid stories started to go around. In 1874, just before he published, Darwin was sent a press cutting, which was allegedly of, it was a story about a a huge plant in Madagascar that secreted a sticky sap that, that human beings actually liked. So just as with the Nepenthes attracting the insects, um, this was supposed to attract people, um, with horrible consequences. And Darwin said he didn't actually. Well, he he didn't immediately realise it was a spoof. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was actually much more worried about the fact that the, the story had two species of animal living in the same area. That he thought well, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. The plant eating a woman. I think he actually found a bit easier to <laughs> to get with. So he spawned a whole industry of these amazing plants that, that attract and kill animals. Um, I think he rather enjoyed it. But he also, he also inspired a, a very serious industry of uh, botanical, further botanical research by others. Um, and one of the, the last things that Darwin published was actually not on plants, it was on worms, on earthworms. But it's related, because really what he's doing in earthworms, um, you can see one of the caricatures about it on the left there, some nice worms. Um, he was approaching the problem from the other end. He was looking at animals that behave like plants. And he pointed out that earthworms don't have stomachs, just like, just like drostera. They secrete uh, a fluid um, externally and absorb nutrition through their skin just the way that the insectivorous plants do. Um, I think it's interesting, there are lots of caricatures of Darwin as various species of ape, lots and lots. I haven't found one of him as a plant, which I think is a real shame. I think he'd have loved to have been caricatured as a wonderful, aggressive, sneaky, carnivorous plant, but he he did work a lot on on this power of movement and um, was at least caricatured sitting in a nice climbing, twining plant there. So he went on, Drottara remained, Sundews remained his favourite, really, of all these plants, um, his guilty hobby. And, okay. Oh, come on. Please, please, please. Two more, two more. What did you do last time, Lucy? I'm sorry. Okay. Yay, okay. So so finally, I think he, I said it was a love affair and it was very intense in those early stages. Went through a period when he played the field a little, went off and looked at some other plants he suspected <laughs> might also be carnivorous. But he came back to Drosera to Sundews in the end and it, 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 it remained his old friend. So he described his old friend, he also finally concluded it is a wonderful plant or a most sagacious animal. Rather like him. There we go. So thank you for bearing with me through all the (laughs) through the slides.